Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. All right. We want to say greetings to everyone. Thank you all so much for joining us today. My name is Brother Hulk Bolden, and as usual, we're so grateful to the Lord to be able to come before you and to uh, share with you the things that the Lord has uh, laid on our hearts to share with you all. Amen. All right. So, uh, if you have your Bibles, let's go to the second chapter of the book of Second Corinthians. We're going to continue to talk about what we've been talking about concerning uh, admitting you're wrong. And, you know, I find that that's one of the hardest things for some people to do is to admit they're wrong. And one of the things the Lord was sharing with me this morning as I was preparing for this and as he was, you know, speaking to me about it was that when, when people don't admit they're wrong, they start from that point when they have been wrong and they don't admit it, they start living a lie and they spend the rest of their time until they admit they're wrong. They spend the rest of their time um, defending that lie, you see. And that's what happens. When you don't admit you're wrong, then you're living a lie, you see. You're you're living a lie. And, and so we're going to get into this. Now, Second Corinthians. In the seventh chapter, now if you go, you can read this in your own time. You can go to the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians and you can see, you can read where a man was there. And he, uh, he was sleeping with his father's wife, in other words, his stepmother. And uh, the church was, the, the church people there, the Corinthians, they knew that it was going on and that they weren't doing anything about it. And so apparently some of the people that were concerned about it wrote Paul, and Paul's response to them was, well, you need to put that man out of the church. What fellowship does, um, you know, should you have with this man? And you shouldn't have any fellowship with him. And a little leaven, leaven is the whole lump. And so uh, they apparently did it because in, in this second epistle that we have here, the second Corinthians, uh, the second chapter he's, admonishing them because the man had repented and apparently they wrote back to Paul and asked him, okay, so now what do we do? He repented, he stopped doing this, and so Paul said, receive him the same way that you were willing to put him out and you were obedient in that. Now it's time for you to show your love towards this man and receive him back to you. And so we see how it works when you admit you're wrong now. He was apparently sleep with his stepmother, his father's wife, and still attending church. And so as long as he was attending church and the people were letting him attend, uh, he didn't have any reason to to be sorry. He didn't have, in his mind, if if the church people are accepting me, 
then I, what wrong am I doing? I don't know what the situation was. I don't know if his, you know, his mother, his stepmother and father had broke up or whatever the case was. But, you know, whatever it was, he must have felt justified in what he was thinking and what he was doing, you know. And but for him to be still bold enough to go to church, even though he was doing this, and so basically, you know, Paul let them know, y'all need to put him out of the church. And when when he did that, the whole purpose was to shame him, to let him know you got something that you need to repent of. You have something that you need to admit, that you need to confess, in other words. And so, you know, that is how we come to salvation. Now, it's amazing to me, the people that say, if you ask people, are you living for the Lord? They say, yeah, Brother Bowling, I'm living for the Lord. They'll tell you that they're living for the Lord. And, but the same people may have a problem with saying that they were wrong. And when you come across someone who just, I mean, no matter how you show them in the word, they just cannot admit that they're wrong. You you really have to question whether or not they're really saved because you don't get saved thinking that you've been doing it all good, you know, up until before you met the Lord. The only way God can help you, the only way you can even be saved, and the only way God can even accept you is if you humble yourself and repent. And repentance means to turn away from. Well, you're not going to turn away from anything if you if you don't think that it was wrong. And so that's the reason why the devil gives some of you so many excuses to justify what you're doing because he knows there's no way that you can repent. You will just continue doing the same actions that you've been doing. As long as you can find an excuse for doing wrong, as long as you can find an excuse for what you're doing, then the devil, or it's everybody else's fault, then the devil got you right where he wants you because he knows you you won't really repent, and it's impossible for you to make it to heaven without true repentance. You see that? And so you won't really repent as long as you can justify your actions. And that's the game that gets played a lot of times, people. Uh, you know, they, they justify their actions, and therefore they don't feel like they need to admit that they're wrong, and they spend their time looking at everybody else, and it's everybody else and it's not me. And, you know, I reacted to you because of this, you know, and I'm telling you, it's a sad state when people really believe that they're saved, but they can't admit that they're wrong and and won't admit that they're wrong. You see, that, that, that shows you you're not humble enough to be saved to begin with. God can't help you, you know. And so this man, after he got put out of church, you know, apparently he came to his senses and repented. And the, I like how the church at Corinth, they weren't going to consider him unless Paul, the apostle, said, okay, go ahead and take him back. He repented, go ahead and take him back. And so that's what they did. They they took the man back into the church, which is what they were supposed to do. Now, it, it lets me know that it is impossible for you to be restored into right fellowship when you have not made right the things that you have wronged, you know, when you have not admitted what you've done. And, and again, we have to repeat this. That does not mean you going to someone and telling them what they've done 
and then saying sorry for what the, what you did. That's not true repentance. That's you. you anytime you add conditions to your confession, then it's not a true confession. You you still on the slick and slide trying to point the finger at somebody else. And so it's not about listen. Don't don't be deceived. You and you alone are responsible for your actions. You and you alone. And so we have to hit that home. It is your choice whether or not you want to be offended, and you and you alone are responsible for your actions. And so when you go before the Lord and repent, and when you repent to your brothers and sisters or whoever you need to confess to, you don't go to them with all of these thoughts in your mind about what they've done. You, You go to them with what you've done, you see that? And if they don't confess what they've done or what you have perceived that they have done, then that's between them and the Lord. But it is not your job to point at them and say, well, you did this, and so I did that. No, that's not true repentance. You need, you're responsible for your own actions. You see? And so this man, uh, whoever he was, apparently he came with a true heart of repentance, really wanting to be back in fellowship, really wanting to make things right. Because, listen, when there has been a trespass, when there have been something where people you have wronged somebody, you that relationship is stalled and it is hindered. You see that it is stalled and it is hindered, and it is that way. Even if you go around people, even if you're around them every day, it is hindered and it is strained until you make things right. Let me explain. Some years ago. I had um, started living for the Lord. Uh, you know, of course, my mother was married. And uh, some of you have heard me You talk talk about Brother Junior. Well, uh, Brother Junior was my uncle or is my uncle by marriage. My my mother uh, married his his brother, his older brother, his dad, uh, uh, about a year and a half apart, I think. And so my mother married his brother. And uh, there were some issues going on. I don't really want to get into all of that. But anyway, I wasn't acting like a Christian. And, of course, you know my stepdad, he was a preacher himself. And uh, so I wasn't I, – I, I didn't mind them getting married. It, it was just some things that I felt like was uh, – that I, I didn't like, you know. And really, it was just me. <clears throat> it was me, you see. Not issues with them, but it was really my fault and my perception. And you know, it is like when you're not living for the Lord, your perception is going to always be off some kind of way. You like, you can count on that. When you're not living for the Lord, your your perception is going to be off. You're going to see some things, and you're going to process it through an evil heart, and it's not going to come out right. And you're going to act on how it how you see it. And and that's why it's important that we use the word of God. You see that. That's why it's important that God's word is has the final authority. I'm afraid of people that that they don't submit to God's word. You know, they don't. You can show them something in God's word, and it don't matter to them. I, you know, I'm hurt, and I feel like you've done me wrong, and this is the way I'm going to act. And so that was where I was. You know, I felt like I had been wronged, and you know, and of course when you feel like you've been wrong, you you go out of your way to try to hurt other people. You know, that's just the nature of the beast. And so I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing and causing trouble and things like that. And so, you know, fast forward, uh, I start living for the Lord, 
And, you know, sometimes it's that way. Right before somebody really, and what I mean live for the Lord, I mean sell out. I'm not talking about going to church. I'm not talking about being a part of a ministry. I mean being sold out. And it, it, sometimes it's like right before that person sell out, they can be the worst. At, they, they'll be at their worst a lot of times. You know, it's that last little fight that people give before they finally surrender. And so when I started living for the Lord, uh, you know, of course, um, going visiting my mother and him, and at that time I was living in uh, Oklahoma as well, and uh, just going to visit, you know, and then they would come up and visit us too. And there were times when, you know, it, it, it just, I, I knew that things weren't right. Like, we we were cordial with one another. We got along. But I knew in my heart that I had done some things. And as long as I didn't make those things right, I was going to be uncomfortable around him, you know, and not uncomfortable to where I didn't want to be around him. I enjoyed his company. We talked about the word and all of that. You know, but it was just I knew that the Lord was weighing this on my heart that you've done some things, and I couldn't I couldn't throw it off on. Well, you know what I did all that before I got saved. They understand that's what that's what sinners do. They make a mess of stuff. You know, and that's I imagine a lot of people do that. They think, well, that was me before I was saved, and so what? You know, it it, it don't. You put a strain, and that strain is there when you've done something, whether you were saved or not, whatever, whether you, the Lord's still working on you, you're still growing, you ain't always saved yet, or however you want to say it. There was still a strain there, and it it was because of me. And I understood that as long as I didn't do something about it, as long as I didn't open my mouth, we spend the rest of our natural lives, you know, as long as we were on earth together, with it like being just this invisible force between us that was keeping us from bonding the way that we should. Now, I could do one or two things. I, I could be obedient and, and do what the word say and make those things right, or I could spend the rest of my life not being uncomfortable around him, I could spend the rest of my life maybe even trying to avoid him, depending on, you know, because, of course, the longer you go in that, something like that, the, the heavier it gets and the more uncomfortable you feel, you know, about it. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to do what the Lord says. And so, you know, after several times of us visiting with one another, you know, driving back and forth or whatever, them driving us to Oklahoma or me driving down to Louisiana to visit. One day, I, you know, it was late at night and everybody was in bed. And so he and I, we were discussing the word and sitting at the table. And I said, you know, uh, I want to talk to you about something. And he said, well, go ahead. I said, well, I want to apologize to you for the way I acted when you and my mother first got married. I said, I shouldn't have done that. I said, I wasn't living for the Lord, and I said, in reality, I was just falling for the trick of the enemy. And I said, it was my fault. Now, I sincerely apologize to you. So while I was saying that, he started crying, and then I started crying, and when we got done, you know how old people do, he said, hug on my neck, you know, or love my neck or something like that, he said. And I, I knew what it meant because I grew up hearing people say that. So we both stood up, and we hugged one another, and he said, you know, our relationship is going to be better. You know, and so from that day until uh, he passed away, that's the way it was. You know, we had a pretty good relationship, and 
you know, I, I, I'm thankful that I made that right, you know, uh, <clears throat> before he left here. And, uh, you know, it, it just, so from that point on, I didn't feel the uncomfortable feelings or anything like that. And, you know, I, I just want to share with you all, you would be surprised, because I'm telling you, after I did that, a weight and a burden was lifted off of me. You would be surprised how much power I'm sorry has. You would be surprised at how much power I apologize. I was wrong. Saying those words, you would be surprised at how much power those things have. You know, you you lift strains off of relationships. You 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 mend relationships. You lift burdens off of yourself, not only yourself, but your soul. You feel like now I can grow further in the Lord with after I'm sorry, I was wrong. Not only I was wrong, but when you, you know, after you've made it right with your brother, your your uh, sister, whoever, then you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, you know, I, I've apologized. I've asked for forgiveness. Now, will you help me not to fall, not to go down that road anymore? I'm telling you, you it, it, to me, it's peace when you feel like now you can go further in the Lord, you know. And as long as you have something, as long as you can't admit that you're wrong about something, you've gone as far as you're going to go in the Lord. And, it, you know, of course, as you've heard me say before, when you stop growing in the Lord, you're already backsliding. You see that? You, there's nobody standing still in the Lord. You're going to either grow in him or you backslide, you see. And so it was just nice to have that burden lifted and also nice to know that we can move forward in our father-son relationship. And, you know, that, that, that is God's design for you uh, when you, you are humble enough to admit that you're wrong about something or that you've done wrong or whatever the case is, that he now it, it removes this thing that's between you and God, and now God can help you to grow further. You see that? And so this man that we read about, you know, that we read about in the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians and then in the second chapter of 2 Corinthians, he he was put out of the church, and after he was put out, apparently, he realized how grave it was because, see, a lot of times what happens is people are just out trespassing against people. I mean, they're just doing all kind of foolish stuff, and because <clears throat> nobody really checks them on it, all the people that do check them, and what I mean when I say check, I mean bring it to their attention. They're able to, you know, throw that away or whatever. They don't realize how grave that their action was. They don't realize how bad it is. I guess especially if they they're just used to, you know, doing whatever and not knowing the consequences or not realizing the consequences. They're just used to doing whatever. It doesn't matter to them. And you know, it's not until the Lord get a hold of them some kind of way. Because Paul told them in the fifth chapter of First Corinthians, give him over to Satan so that his flesh may be buffeted. Turn him over to the devil. Now, and that's what they did. They turned him over, and I don't doubt whatsoever that the devil got a hold of him. Now, let me make this clear. You don't ever get in so good with the devil the way he won't turn against you. When the church turned you over to Satan, now, that's a command that we're given as believers, you know, as a church body, you know, regardless if that church belonged to God, 
That is a command that we are given to do. Turn them over to Satan. People that are causing division, people that are out doing these things, when you when they are excommunicated, turn them over to the devil. Let and let the devil happen. Why? So that they'll repent and they'll 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 come back to God. It, it, it's the same concept as Elijah praying that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain. Why? Did he want sheep and cattle to die? Did he want people to be thirsty all the time? Did he want to cause the hardship? No. But the 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 end justifies the means. He wanted the nation of Israel to turn their hearts back to God. And all and all he was doing was setting it up for the big showdown that would take place on Mount Carmel. And so ultimately that's God's main concern is your soul belongs to him. You spend an eternity with him. And he'd rather that you go through a little something on this side than going through hell and going to the lake of fire on that side where you'd be lost for an eternity. And so we're commanded as a ministry and, and as a church of God to turn people's flesh over to the devil. Or when they're disobedient, whatever, just turn them over. I just will for disobedience. You, you're really doing it yourself. When you walk in disobedience to the Lord, you're really saying, you know what, God, take that stench from around me. I don't want your protection anymore. That's what you're really doing. It doesn't matter how much God loves you. When you walk and you're acting against God, acting out against him, you're basically, you're taking that fence down yourself, that hedge of protection. And so that's what took place here. And finally, the man confessed his sin and repented, and he was able to be helped. Now, so let's start reading. Chapter of 2 Corinthians, and we're going to... Uh, Start reading at verse seven, uh, verse one. It says, "Having therefore these promises, what promises? That if you come out, you know, and be ye separate, come out from among them. In other words, unclean people, people that worshiping themselves or have idols and just doing ungodly things, and be ye separate and touch not the unclean thing, that God will receive you, and you'll be His." sons and daughters and things like that. So he says, having therefore these promises, dear beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So that, that's telling you your responsibility is not to lean on grace, is not to say, well, you know, God, I, I just gave my life to you. What do you expect? I've only been saved for a year. What do you expect? He says, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness, not some, not the ones that you feel like is too hard, whatever, you know, from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. That means your spirit man can be filthy. You see that? Now, that, that's something for you to know there. And, and you come across that sometimes. People might have it. They might be moral where they're not sleeping around. They're not lying. They're not stealing and doing those things, and, you know, people go to hell all the time, moral. That moral has nothing to do. But your spirit, man, when that's filthy, that's when you have an issue. You see that? Because you can be moral and, and still go to hell, you see. And you, now I hope you get that, you see that. All right, it says perfected holiness in the fear of God. Look at what he says. Receive us. In other words, don't reject us. 
We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. In other words, don't before you before you get tempted to reject us, look at our track record. What have, what have we done that was wrong? He's talking about them as ministers. He said, I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. So if you notice in a lot of Paul's writings, he's always trying to convince people that he loved them. And that's the reason why he writes the way that he writes to them. That's the reason why when he's among them, he preaches that way. He does that because he loves them. And it's hard to get people to see that sometimes. You know, it's just like children have two parents, of course, and sometimes one parent is softer than the other, and the one that's softer is usually the one that the child wants to gravitate, gravitate to. You see that? Why? Because in that little childish mind, the one that's correcting me don't like me. And you know what's unfortunate? Those little children, they grow up to become adults, 40, 50, 60 years old, they with the same mind. That that one that God sent to correct me, he don't really like me. He, he's saying that because he got it in for me. Except the Bible says, whom the Lord loveth, what does he do? Chasten. In other words, correct. And so it shows that sometimes people's definition of love is corrupted based on the world system. You see that? Not according to God's word. So look at what he says. Verse 4, great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my glorifying of you. I am filled with conquering. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. And let's, so let's go down uh, to verse 8. It says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, talking about what he wrote in First Corinthians and how he was rebuking them and things like that, he says, I do not repent. In other words, I'm not sorry for telling you what I told you. So even though I know it grieves you, even though I know it may have gotten on your nerves, I'm not going. I'm not sorry for, for, for what I wrote you. Look what he says there. He said, "I do not repent, though I did repent." In other words, he was bad about the way that they took it, but he was not sorry for what he did. So see, there's a difference there. When I preach God's word. I may feel bad about the way you take it, but I'm not sorry for saying it. That, 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 and that's what makes me continue on with boldness. I don't back down. I understand folks are going to take this word wrong. I understand folks are going to take the chastisement of the Lord wrong. I understand that. But I'm not sorry about it. I, I'm, you know, this is your soul is on the line, and your soul is more important to me than our friendship or our relationship. I, I'd rather you be mad at me for a little bit and get over and grow on in the Lord than for me to be friends with you, you know, or you, you, what you think is a friend. You see that? All right. He says, for I perceive that the same epistle has made you sorry, though it were but for a season. You see that? In other words, that's, that's the reason why I was sorry, because I didn't like the way that it would make you feel. But I wasn't sorry for writing it or saying what I said. Verse 9, he said, and look what he says, though it were but for a season. So that's the way I look at it. You might get mad for a little bit, but you'll, you'll get over it. And my prayer is that in getting over it, you will accept it and grow on in the Lord, you see. He says, verse 9, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. Everybody see that? 
for ye were made sorry after a godly manner. In other words, according to the word of God. And that's what God's word is meant to do. It's meant to prick your heart. If something ain't right in your heart, it's meant to tap on your heart and say, hey, you need to get this right. It is meant, you don't repent, then that's what's wrong with a lot of so-called Christians today. They haven't truly repented because they're not sorry for their life. They're not, they don't see anything wrong with the way that they've lived their whole life. And so it's hard for them to accept salvation and really appreciate salvation as long as they don't really have a clue that they really needed to be saved. When you spent your whole life blaming other people for your actions, when you spent your life blaming other people and pointing the finger at other people and justifying your actions, how can you really say that you were saved when you're not sorry, uh, you don't see any need to turn away from what you've been doing your whole life? When those preachers preached in the book of Acts and even in the Gospels, they were preaching to prick people. They were preaching to let people know y'all need to get saved. Now, I think it's a sad state of affairs when somebody's out in the water drowning and they don't realize they're drowning. They don't even, you can throw them a lifeline and they think, you just threw me to hit me in my head. You're not throwing that because I'm all right. I'm out here swimming when, in fact, they're drowning. So how can you help somebody, in other words, that don't know that they need to be helped? You see that? So let's read this again. He said, verse 9, says, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. Verse 10, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. Everybody see that? Not to be repented of. In other words, godly sorrow, when you're truly sorry, you'll repent. You'll turn from that. Somebody that keeps doing the same thing over and over again, they're not truly repentant. They're not with a godly sorrow. They might get tired of apologizing. They might get tired of going through the same cycle, but they're not really repentant. They don't really see the real nature of their actions. But he said that godly sorrow work in repentance to salvation, not to be repentant of, but the sorrow of the world work at death. You know what that means? That if you're sorry and you're just sorry because whatever, anything outside of godly repentance or godly sorrow, he says that that work is death. You know why? Because you have a false sorrow and you replaced godly sorrow with your false sorrow. Maybe you're just tired, you know, but you're not really, you don't really see the nature of what you were doing and you don't really see what was wrong with what you were doing. And so, that's worldly sorrow and it works as death because it's designed to make you think you've made things right when you really haven't. And you'll know you'll keep going through the same cycles over and over again. And that's why it works as death because it's, it's not the kind of sorrow that sparks a change in you. And that's not God's will. You see that? I want to read one more scripture, the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians. In verse 16, this is the same writer, Paul. He says, am I, therefore, become your enemy because I tell you the truth? You see that? What does he mean when he say that? There are so many people, when they hear God's word, 
they have made enemies out of people who God has sent to bring his word, all because he's telling them the truth. That's not God's will. Godly sorrow don't look at the preacher and blame the preacher for what God is speaking through him. Godly sorrow don't look at anything but self and say, you know what, self, if, if what that preacher is saying is lining up with God's word, then you need to line up with God's word. So godly sorrow does not make an enemy out of God's ministers who God has sent to correct you. You see that? And so many times people have done that. You see that even with, with John the Baptist was beheaded because some woman didn't like the fact that he was he spoke against a relationship that she was in, that she had been with one brother, and I guess they broke up, and she ended up marrying or dating the man's brother. And so John the Baptist came and told him, it's unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. And, he, and Herod didn't like it and had the man put in jail and had him put in prison. And the day came where they were feasting, and, and Herod made a promise that he would give uh, that the woman's daughter had danced so well, he promised her, I'd give you, you can ask for anything, up to a certain part of my kingdom. And instead of her asking for a certain part of the kingdom or whatever it was that her heart desired, she went to her mother, and her mother said, I want John the Baptist's head in a charger. And that's what happened. John the Baptist said what he said because he was a righteous preacher and he wanted to see them do better. But a lot of times, People perceive that as you're my enemy. And what happens is people will make an enemy out of you, and, and when they're around you, they around you as if you're their enemy. Like you have the same thought about them that they have about you. You see that? And that, so Paul asked that question. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Well, it's only the truth that's going to make you free. That's, there's only one thing that makes you free in this world, and that's the truth. And, and God's truth is designed to make you free. And so if you want to come out of bondage, accept God's truth, admit that you've been wrong, admit your shortcomings, and then God can help you and set you free. Amen. We want to say thank you all for joining us today. We pray that something was said that has been a blessing to you, and we look forward to sharing more of God's word with you in the future. Have a blessed day. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.